but it was when Ezard visited the poorer parts of Cincinnati, in particular the areas where he grew up, that he was um, crushed by uh, the people's disfavor of him because he had beaten their idol. Ezard Charles is Cincinnati's heavyweight champion of the world, and today the city celebrates him with statues, murals, and a major street's name. But when he held the title, Cincinnati didn't love him at all. A guy who fought 210-pound monsters at 180 pounds. So sure, people here nodded at him when he bought his vegetables at Finley Market, but he couldn't sit in a box and watch the horses race at River Downs. So how did Ezard Charles become one of the most disrespected heavyweight champs of all time? We're going to answer that on this episode of Total Fighter. This episode is part four of a five-part series about Ezra Charles. My name is Ricky Mulvey. You don't receive a heavyweight title. You have to take it from somebody. Ezard fought for his first in a semi-final match versus a guy named Joey Maxim at the Cincinnati Gardens, and then he fought for the vacant NBA heavyweight championship against Jersey Joe Walcott in Chicago. Today, we would call it a sort of interim title. That's because Joe Lewis sold his heavyweight belt to an organization called the International Boxing Club and signed on as a promoter for the fight who would determine his successor. What led to it is this fabricated tournament that Lewis and the guys and his advisors and the guys at the IBC, which were, again, a front for the mob, they wanted to uh, put together this phony tournament to um, name a successor uh, to Lewis and then build that a fight between Lewis and that successor into a big money match because Lewis is just mowing guys down. And even at this point when he was, you know, old and, and what we would call washed now, right? Mm-hmm. He was still mowing guys down and, and he was believed to be head and shoulders above everybody else. That's William Detloff, author of Ezra Charles' A Boxing Life. Charles had hit the big time. He was officially fighting for a heavyweight championship and it was time for anybody who stood in his way to get out. Ezard Cincinnati promoter Sam Becker was left in the dust harshly and directly by the mafia. Becker later testified to Congress about how the mafia pushed him around and got Ezard's contract. When Ezard beat Joey Maxim at the Cincinnati Gardens, the promoter, Jersey Joe Walcott, Ezard Charles, and both of their management teams discussed the upcoming match against Walcott in a Cincinnati hotel room until 2 a.m. that night. They adjourned, everyone was tired, and they had an understanding that they would meet again for breakfast. But the next morning, the promoter Becker showed up and no one else was there. Joe Lewis had allegedly said to Charles something along the lines of, if you don't take orders from me and Mr. Norris, who is the head of the International Boxing Club, you will never fight for the championship. So Becker had to go to Miami and meet Jim Norris. The tycoon told that Cincinnati promoter, quote, if you want to get Walcott and Charles fighting, you have to give me $150,000. Becker was shocked. Why all that money, he said. After all, I've promoted Charles since he was 14 years old. Norris said, well, Charles belongs to me now. Mr. Walcott belongs to me. Because when fighters got successful in that era, it was impossible to make a big fight without dealing with some extension of the mob. So the International Boxing Club would control the fight, the heavyweight championship, and Sam Becker would join some of Ezard's old managers and even his first trainer, a guy named Burt Williams, who were people important to his early success, but then swept aside by the larger forces in boxing. Ezard owed something to Burt Williams for the fighter that he became. Again, that's William Detloff. 
and it's and and Williams, by the way, became very bitter uh, later on when um, Ezra started quote unquote getting into the money. Uh, used to be said when a fighter started getting successful, and uh, I don't really blame him, but I but I don't know exactly why they split. Cincinnati Post editor Joe Aston interviewed him before the fight against Jersey Joe Walcott. Williams remembered what in his mind was the early days. He said that while he was in debt, he refused to take a cut of Charles's early fight purses. And when Ezard needed money to even make a car payment, Burt Williams said his wife sold her diamond ring to give Ez the money. And after being squeezed out, Williams says that he wrote to Ez for a little bit of cash to pay for some hospital bills, but he received a cold shoulder. Williams went on to say about the Walcott fight, quote, I think Jersey Joe will knock Ezard out in less than 10 rounds. If he doesn't, the fight's not on the level. Jersey Joe's more of a fighter in every respect than Ezard Charles. I'm not just saying that because of what happened in the past either. Jersey Joe Walcott was an enigma, a sphinx, and he'd proven to be a very tough out for Joe Lewis. He shuffled across the ring and rarely threw more than two punch combinations. Walcott baited opponents with a backwards movement and then creamed them with a hard counter shot. And Walcott wasn't the quickest, but he knew how to use leverage, and he constantly tripped up some of the best fighters of the day by switching lead legs and changing punching angles. But the gamblers thought that Ezard's speed would beat that experience. Jersey Joe had a listed age of 35 years, but he was probably older. And while the fight was advertised as the official heavyweight championship, its real purpose was to find an opponent for Joe Lewis. So they needed to generate some interest in a big money fight. They already fought Walcott a couple times. Again, that's William Detloff. So this is really, again, a, a way to maneuver the fans into a paying for a big Lewis fight. So on fight night at Kaminsky Park in Chicago, Joe Lewis may have been quietly rooting for Ezra Charles to win. That's because Lewis had won a gift decision over Walcott in their first match. The fans were convinced that Lewis had lost too. And still the heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. Walcott had actually knocked him down twice, and Lewis was so convinced that he lost that he tried to leave the ring before the announced decision. In their rematch, Lewis knocked out Walcott, but it wasn't before he was knocked down himself. Like Ezard, Walcott wasn't a crowd favorite at heavyweight. Baiting fighters with a puzzling shuffle step took a patience that most fans did not have, and at heavyweight, Ezard was an undersized counterpuncher. He was a natural light heavyweight. He only weighed 100, and walking around 100, and 90 pounds, maybe, soaking wet. That's Buddy LaRosa, the founder of LaRosa's Pizza and a longtime Cincinnati boxing icon. Charles and Walcott had the impossible task of fighting in Joe Lewis's shadow. Joe Lewis was the closest thing that America ever had to Superman, and for 12 years, he reigned as the heavyweight champion. He respected Joe. See, that was the thing. Joe Lewis in the Negro African-American community he was the biggest big shot. That's Ezra Charles II, the minister Ezra Charles. That's what, you know, inspired my dad and other young African-American fighters with Joe Lewis and having the, the fame that he got. Because Lewis, you, can, you just can't compare anybody to uh, Joe Lewis in terms of the excitement he can bring to the table. And while the guys at the International Boxing Club thought Joe Lewis would be great at promoting a fight, he was unfortunately honest. When a radio broadcaster asked Lewis how ticket sales were going, you would expect the response to be absolutely wonderful, we're going to sell out soon. But the perpetually honest Joe Lewis said, quote, I don't know, we ain't sold none yet. 
but the fight was still a heavyweight championship taking place in a big city, so promoters were able to drive up some interest, and 26,000 fans reportedly came out to Kaminsky Park to watch that fight between Walcott and Charles for the interim title. Those fans crowded in the folding chairs on the infield of the baseball diamond, but the lower level seats were sparsely filled. The cheap seats in the balcony, though, were rowdier and drunker. Both Walcott and Ezard didn't try to entertain them, though. They fought to win. Ezard's trainer, Jimmy Brown, had created a very cautious game plan. Brown knew that Walcott had knocked Joe Lewis down three times in two fights. He made Ezard study that film. And Jersey Joe did exactly that. He looked for that quick knockout in the second round, but Ezard punished him with hooks to the head and didn't give him time to load follow-up punches. And Jimmy Brown always made sure that Ezard didn't fall into Walcott's shuffle-step trap, even when he was ahead. Ezard hurt Jersey Joe in the eighth round, but instead of going for the knockout, he stepped back and chose to score the points. The crowd booed. They wanted to see blood. And in the championship rounds, both fighters coasted. The 35-year-old Walcott, he had nothing left in the tank, and Ezard still didn't want to risk getting hit with a one-off punch. And the most exciting moment of the fight may have actually come after the decision, when Ezard's bombastic manager, Jake Mintz, fainted in the middle of the ring when he was so elated with the good news as his fighter had been declared the winner. The judges gave Ez a solid decision, but the disappointed fans filed out of Kaminsky Park. Those fans were angry that Ez didn't take a chance and go for the knockout. The writers were pissed that Charles didn't fight like his predecessor either. And that night, Ezard didn't feel like a champion. After the fight, sports writers, glad handlers, and one of Ezard's new promoters, Joe Lewis, hung out in Ezard's locker room. A writer asked Ez who he wanted to fight next. He looked to Joe Lewis and said, quote, whoever the champ wants me to. In the morning after, Ezard's longtime confidant, Richard Christmas, asked him, do you feel like a champion? Nope, Ezard said, do you? When Ezard got back to Cincinnati, the city hosted a parade to honor their new heavyweight king. The parades went exactly like you would expect them to in terms of the, you know, the frenzy by the crowd and the speeches and the politicians getting their hands in and everything. That's William Detloff, author of Ezard Charles, A Boxing Life. There was a woman who allegedly was hit by a car in one of the, during the motorcade, I think it might have been, might have been Ezard's car, uh, who claimed afterwards she was crippled for life and wanted to sue everybody and that kind of thing. And that kind of thing always happens for some reason. That woman sued Ezard for $24,000, more than he took home for the Walcott fight. I don't know if she got anything out of him, though. But for the most part, Cincinnati loved their hero and his generosity. I don't remember a, a heavyweight or a champion that would take the time to give a kid a silver dollar. He gave me a silver dollar. Again, that's Buddy LaRosa. And Ezard, the champ, launched new business ventures now that he had some money in his pocket. The thing is, you can't just give money to a business and expect to thrive in it. You've got to be hands-on. And he was never hands-on with the businesses. That's Kevin Grace, an archivist at the University of Cincinnati and the author of Cincinnati Boxing. The Champ opened a multi-purpose fitness and entertainment complex. The Ezra Charles Health and Athletic Club even had a slenderizing salon where roller massages would melt your belly fat away. Allegedly. Who knows? Ezard spent more time upstairs where there were heavy bags and a boxing ring. If you're an athlete and you know entertainment, you know a lot of people, what he wanted to do in this Ezard Charles Center or, or whatever he wanted to call it was to do the same thing. He wanted to be a gym. He wanted to be a music venue. Uh, in essence, he wanted to be a lot of things rather than a particular thing. Ez charged 25 cents admission to get into the gym, but he didn't often bother with having someone at the entrance to collect admission. He had made plenty of money from fighting, and he had no problem giving that money to his friends and family. 
he was buying guys suits, you know, because they were hanging out with him. You know, they had it look good because he was looking good. They, he was buying suits and everything else, man. So they, he didn't even have to ask. You know, he was going to take care of his friend. Again, that's Ezra Charles II. Ezard had the heavyweight crown. He was a king in his city, but he was still black. On one of his off days, Ezard went down to the horse track at Cincinnati's River Downs. It was a hot day, and he tried to enter the clubhouse to get away from the heat, but security asked him to leave. That club, whites only. But even through that, Ezard still loved his city. People were telling him to go to New York, Chicago, get out of Cincinnati, go to the big city in New York, which he loved. He used to play at the Cotton Club, you know, because he played bass. The heavyweight champ never claimed to be particularly good at playing the double bass, but he did love to listen to jazz music, and he had a hand in helping build the jazz scene in Over the Rhine, or OTR, which is an urban and then more working-class neighborhood. When he would travel the world, he would grab vinyl. One of the great stories about him is he would grab vinyl, and then when he'd come off his plane in Lincoln Airport, he'd have some vinyl with him, and he'd hand it out to OTR jazz musicians. I mean, he was his own Apple Music service, the OTR jazz people. That's Andrew Vansicle, a West End native who's an artist and also leading the effort to get a statue of Ezra Charles in Laurel Park. After winning a big championship, most fighters would take time off to heal, maybe fight in some exhibition matches, and enjoy being the king. Ezra didn't get that luxury, though. And the mob, or the International Boxing Club, whatever you want to call it, set up his next fight, this time against Gus Lesnovich less than two months after he went 15 rounds with Jersey Joe. That's, and that shows the mob's influence, by the way. He could not get a shot at Gus Lesnovich throughout his light heavyweight career because the mob knew that he was going to kick Gus's ass. And as soon as Ezra wins a championship in the world at heavyweight, who gets the first title shot? Gus Lesnovich. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Ezra made that call. Again, that's William Detloff. Lesnovich was the light heavyweight champion for years and dodged Charles for all of them. One author wrote about Lesnovich that he dominated the division, and yeah, he held the title for years, but only risked his crown against less talented and strictly white fighters. Ezra ripped through every contender, but Lesnovich and his managers always, always found an excuse to run from him. And Gus Lesnovich had absolutely no business fighting Charles for the heavyweight title. Joey Maxim just outclassed Lesnovich for 10 rounds at the Cincinnati Gardens, and his last win was over some poor guy who had lost five of his past six fights. Richard Christmas, Ezard's confidant, was furious about the match. Lesnovich had dodged Eds for years, and now he was fighting for the new title on the first defense, and not only that, Lesnovich was going to get the same cut of the gate revenue as Charles did. It was bullshit. But if Ezard was frustrated, he didn't show it before the fight. When one writer asked him if he'd knock Lesnovich out, he said, quote, Oh, uh, I don't know. If he walks into it, sure, he'll get knocked out. In the 102-degree heat at Yankee Stadium, Ezard ripped through Gus in front of a sparse crowd. That's because there are levels to the fight game, and Ezard was simply on a different one than Gus. In the early rounds, the Cincinnati Cobra hammered both of Gus's eyes, swelling them to near blindness. He was hitting harder than he did in Chicago. Ez staggered Gus in the third, and in the sixth round, Charles opened a gash on his cheek. He was just playing with him at that point. And after the seventh round, Gus had enough. He quit on his stool. Gus retired after that fight in the locker room and never stepped in a boxing ring again. And isn't that the kind of violence that sports writers want in a prize fight? The headlines wouldn't cut Ezra to break, though. Lesnovich made even Charles look good, one read and the indignities would not stop there. Ezard's next defense came just seven weeks later. 
he took on the hard-punching Pat Valentino in California. And Valentino's manager complained about Ezard's mustache, how it could hide punches. The boxing commission made him shave before the fight. And in a move I've never seen repeated, Charles made his ring walk before Valentino and was announced first. In the red corner at 188 and one half pounds, the challenger from San Francisco, Pat Valentino. It's the champion's privilege to be announced second in a fight. You make the challenger wait for you, you're the main event. But Ezard was so disliked as a champion, even if he was an interim one, he couldn't even get that courtesy. And the 20,000 California fight fans booed him when he made his way to the ring. The Californian, Valentino, knew he was fighting against someone significantly better than him, though. He fought with nervous energy. He threw winging punches, some landed, but most of them glanced off Ezard's forearms. Valentino tried to bull rush Ezard, trying to beat finesse with force, but whenever Valentino tried to clinch, Ez got in the sharper punches, hit body shots, and tired him out. Ez split apart his guard with lightning jabs to the head, and he finished Valentino with a one-two, a left hook and a right cross to his challenger's unguarded jaw. And it's a good thing that Charles knocked his opponent unconscious, because at that point the judges were actually giving Valentino a steady lead right until that knockout round. After the fight, a radio reporter gushed over Valentino. You didn't disappoint anyone because you put up a great fight. In those early rounds, you were really landing with those rights and lefts to the body. Did you think you might wear them down and then put them away? I thought I would wear them down. What are your plans for the near future, Pat? The reporter, I guess, didn't have time for the black fighter in Cincinnati. You know, the one who threw the right hand that knocked him out. Well, off of the showing you made up till the time you were hit with that right hand, I certainly believe you deserve it. Best of luck, old boy. See you, Pat. Ezra couldn't catch a break, and when he got home from California, he found that his former Cincinnati managers were suing him, and any luster from the interim title had already worn thin. His next defense was in Buffalo, New York, and it drew just 6,300 fans, which was a record low for the heavyweight title. To say that he wasn't popular on a big scale is not the same as saying he wasn't still looked upon as a hometown boy who made good. Clearly, there were plenty of people in Cincinnati who revered Charles and looked up to him because he was a Cincinnati boy, right? Um, but on a larger scale, and especially on a national scale, uh, he wasn't uh, particularly liked. Again, that's William Detloff. The International Boxing Club hoped that keeping Ezra busy would generate some money, but they were already getting sick of the small profits. And Joe Lewis had a high enough tax bill that he was starting to get ready to fight for real again. I think in his mind, he wished Lewis would retire because Lewis was close to the end of the road by the time he fought Charles. I mean, he was still a great boxer, but he wasn't in his prime any longer. And he was an American hero. Again, that's Kevin Grace, an archivist at the University of Cincinnati. Ezra Charles and Joe Lewis signed a fight at Yankee Stadium in New York. It would be the biggest fight of Ezra's life, and he'd have to box a man who he considered his hero. I mean, he used to collect newspaper articles featuring Joe Lewis and put him in a scrapbook when he was a kid. And while Joe had slowed, you know, a touch, he hadn't lost a fight since Ez was 14 years old and he'd been keeping active in exhibitions. Like, in one, Lewis battled Pat Valentino. Ezard sat ringside, and in the eighth round, Lewis actually knocked out Valentino and placed him right in front of Ez's ringside seat. 
It was like a cat presenting him with a dead bird. Lewis even had three exhibitions then against violent Elmer Ray, a fighter he swore that he'd never face and had previously given Ezard a lot of trouble. Ray came close and was even in one of the four round exhibitions, but he made the mistake of asking for a rematch, and in that one, Lewis knocked him out. Ez was not preparing to fight a hapless old man, but age was an issue and Joe Lewis was on the wrong side of 35 years. In, in that age, and even until fairly recently, 31 or 32 was considered washed up. But the last thing any fighter loses is the power, and Joe Lewis still had a ferocious left jab. Ezard could easily lose and was the underdog. He took a real fight camp in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. Mintz had also brought on the trainer Ray Arcel to act as Ezard's second. And while Arcel was a great trainer, coaching more than a dozen world champs, he had earned the moniker the Meat Wagon because he'd worked in so many of the corners of the heavyweights that Lewis would go on to knock out. He worked with so many challengers that in one fight, Lewis looked at Ray Arcel from across the ring before the bell and said, huh, you're here again? So he got stuck with a lot of these palookas that I shouldn't call them palookas, but guys that didn't stand a chance against Lewis, but he trained some great, great fighters and knew what he was doing. That's the first thing. Secondly, there's no way in hell that Ezra Charles made that decision. Again, that's William Detloff. There's no way. There's absolutely no reason he would have made that decision because not only was he perfectly comfortable with Jimmy Brown as his trainer, that means that's more money out of his paycheck if he's got to pay Ray Arcel, especially a high-profile trainer like Ray Arcel. Here's how you train for a fight against Joe Lewis, or here's how Ez did. He woke up every morning at 5.30 a.m. for a five-mile run. He took a quick nap and then had an athlete's breakfast of dry cereal, prunes, and lamb chops. No coffee. In the afternoon, he'd hit the heavy bag and jump rope if he didn't get his miles in. But Jimmy Brown did his best to get live bodies in to spar with Ez. Uh, heavy bags don't punch back. Uh, speed bags don't punch back. Again, that's Buddy LaRosa. Uh, when you shadow box, there's nobody hitting you back. Well, you're in the ring with the guy and you're boxing him. Uh, I don't say fighting him, you're boxing him. He's going to hit back at you. At night, he'd eat steak and vegetables and watch films of Lewis's old knockouts. Maybe he'd listen to a jazz record at night, Little Billy Holiday. Lights out then at 9.30 p.m. The training was built around using speed and stamina to beat the aging Lewis. And Lewis built his training around the opposite strategy, knock Ez out early. One sports writer who visited both camps said that Lewis was, quote, slower, but more powerful than ever. But he was, he was crushing guys and sparring the whole time. As they were just doing his thing, his, his usual thing. Lewis was, uh, by all accounts, very confident during training. That's William Detloff, author of Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. Give old man strength some credit, too. Lewis needed just one punch to beat Ezra Charles, his left, and he had more power than any fighter in the planet in his 12 years as the heavyweight champ. He also had 34 pounds on Ezard, so just about everyone in the boxing world picked Lewis to win. The almost exception was Sugar Ray Robinson, who said that Charles looked superb in training and that he refused to pick an outcome in the fight, but when he was pressed, he said, quote, it's treason to pick anyone other than Joe Lewis. It was absolutely lose-lose because if he wins, he beat up a, an old Joe mm -hmm. Lewis. And if he loses, he lost to an old Joe Lewis. But at least in his mind, he was A, going to get recognition as the heavyweight champion of the world, which he didn't really, right, the way he wanted to. Uh, and B, it was, I'm sure, a, a career high payday for him. And for once, Ezard actually gave the newspaper writers a story. Charles said he wasn't gonna try to stick and move against Joe. He was gonna try to mix it up and outpunch him. But ticket sales didn't go quite as well as the promoters hoped. They couldn't drum up interest, and 23,000 fans half-filled Yankee Stadium. 
and maybe a dozen or so were people from Cincinnati who took the train from Union Terminal to New York. If you walked by Ezard's locker room, you wouldn't know he was about to be in a fight. Ezard stretched and nodded his head to a Sarah Vaughn record. He'd finished training. The fight was the fun part. All the wars that you're in in the gym, and then training is hard. The fights are easy. But Ezard was in a lot of wars in the ring because he was a small heavyweight. Again, that's Buddy LaRosa. Joe Lewis was jittery before a fight for the first time in a long time. He had a shortened training camp. He still had a powerful left, but he knew he'd lost a step, and he even thought about calling a fight off. But the crowd was ready to go. The politicians, the celebrities, athletes already had their tickets. Frank Sinatra was ringside with his girlfriend, Ava Gardner. So was the governor of New York and a Supreme Court justice. The fight began and Ezard kept his promise. He charged directly at Joe Lewis, landing sharp, slicing punches, and set the tone for the rest of the night. And he didn't have one-punch knockout power like Lewis, but he stood and banged with him. Both, both with those beautiful lefts, one off a counter by Charles, which is unusual, and now they're punching. The first few rounds were relatively even. Joe Lewis kept Ezard at bay with a powerful left jab. Ezard buzzed around like a hornet and landed counters when he could. He, he would make so many subtle movements, like if you don't have a trained eye, you wouldn't know what's happening. Like he moved his hand a bit like this, he dropped down the level so Lewis would think he's about to go to the body. Like he would always keep a guy guessing like this. That's Hamad Youssef, an amateur boxer and a scholar of the sweet science. And the crowd likes this one because this is really a good fight. Jimmy Brown had crafted a beautiful strategy to beat Lewis. Principally, it was not to stand in Lewis's punching range or at that mid-range when Lewis could uh, extend his punches, even his short punches, and need a little bit of room to get him off. And Ezard's job was to get in there, get his punches off, and get it out a little bit, and to maul him a little bit on the inside and help to tire him out there, too. And importantly, to use his better hand speed to beat Lewis with the punch inside, which he did. Again, that's William Detloff. That's a different Joe Lewis, missing three blows in a row. Half a minute to go of the fourth round. And Lewis only put Ezard in danger at one point in the fight. That was late in the 10th round. Close then, the camera couldn't reveal it. A terrific short right. It landed on the button of Ezra Charles, and he's bleeding more profusely. Joe's best round now, and the crowd roaring with Lewis finally caught Charles with a hook and hurt him. The crowd just exploded because they could see that heart Charles was hurt also. Uh, and he had him wobbly. But in the championship rounds, from the 10th and the 15th after that, the fight was all Ezard. Late in the 14th, Joe Lewis was so tired that he actually hung his arm off the top rope. Superman now was a tired old human. All you ever read about is how um, awful people felt watching Joe Lewis get beaten up because he was so revered and so loved uh, by everyone. But if you watch that fight, at that moment when Ezard hits him with an uppercut. See Joe back up on that one. His eyes went slightly glazy on that one as if he were tired. He's really in pain and he grabs the top rope to steady himself. The crowd explodes. And I don't think it's because they didn't love Lewis, but it's that individuals hurt when they see their fighter get beaten up like that. But crowds love it. Ezard won by a solid decision. And after the fight, Ez got to speak to the crowd. Joe, before you go, Joe, Joe, Joe for an old friend. Joe Lewis is going out of the ring, and I haven't been able to get him. So we'll talk to Ezard Charles. I thought I could get Joe. We've been friends all through his fighting career. It helps that Joe Lewis was unavailable. And, uh, since I won the championship, I feel very proud about it. 
and uh, and I'll try and, and, and do my best to keep it as clean as uh, the previous fellow who just stepped now in Joe Lewis. I'll try to be as much of a Ray Arcel, who was a co-trainer of Ezra Charles, he said on that night that the, the night Charles beat Joe Lewis, he would have beaten him at any point in the stream, even if it was a prime Joe Lewis. Then it was time to party. At the Edison Hotel in Times Square, the managers Jake Mintz and Tom Tannis drank like college kids on New Year's Eve. A large crowd had gathered in the hotel's barroom, smoking cigars and spilling ash and whiskey on the marble floor. Mintz shouted over them. I always knew that Joe Lewis was a bum. Bud Schulberg, who later wrote On the Waterfront, was there. He wrote, quote, It was freeloaders night with hangers-on, relatives, gamblers, happy hoods, and a smattering of sports-minded gentry pouring the free scotch and telling each other what a great fighter and a prince among men was Ezra Charles. But no one noticed that Ez wasn't there to join his party. He may have won, but he still took headshots from Joe Lewis. He stayed in his room like a beat-up Jay Gatsby. Schulberg went up to see him and wrote, quote, Ezard, who had looked from ringside an easy winner, was stretched out on a bed, and Ray Arcel was attending his swelling and lacerations. This was, without question, the high night of his career, but instead of smiles and festivity, the place had a sick room atmosphere. He may have been five years over the hill and at least 15 pounds over his best fighting weight, but that Lewis jab can still take your head off, Ray Arcel said, and Ez, the newly undisputed champion of the world, nodded soberly. Ez tended to his wounds and rode the train back to Cincinnati. When he returned, the city of Cincinnati held a parade in his honor, starting at Union Terminal. Finally, Ezard figured, he'd be loved as the undisputed champ. He addressed the crowd and said, quote, There is no other land where a Negro could get the reception I have had from you. But when he toured his old West End neighborhood, the local kids didn't run to see him. But it was when Ezard visited the poorer parts of Cincinnati, in particular the areas where he grew up, those people weren't really able to get to the parade or probably had more pressing things on their agenda than attending parades, like, you know, surviving, that he was um, crushed by uh, the people's disfavor of him because he had beaten uh, their idol. Joe Lewis was an enormous symbol uh, to so many people during that time, especially um, black Americans living in ghettos. He was everything. And Ezra Charles was just a guy. Ezra did just about everything right, but he made the unforgivable mistake of showing that Superman can't fly forever. Would Ezra's reign as heavyweight champion ever get better? And what happens after you fall from that pillar? That's next time on Total Fighter. This show is written, produced, edited, hosted by me. My name's Ricky Mulvey. Uh, please do me a favor, review the show if you've made it this far. It really helps me out and helps other people discover the show. Uh, the next one, the finale, is going to be out in about two weeks. Um, also, special thanks to William Detloff. He wrote Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. It's been an invaluable resource for me, and I highly recommend buying the book if you're interested in the subject. Also, thanks to Buddy LaRosa, Kevin Grace, Daryl P. Man Jones, Andrew Vansicle, Hamad Youssef, and thank you for listening. Music attributions can be found at Total Fighter at Blueberry.net. See you in about a couple of weeks. Thanks. Thanks.